Welcome to the I Am Persuaded podcast with Travis Shelton. Our desire is to provide weekly encouragement and biblical truths so that you too can be persuaded that He is able. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Now, let's hear what Pastor Travis has to say. Welcome back to the I'm Persuaded podcast. Thank you to those of you that tune in to the episodes each week and every Friday that they're posted. Thank you so much to those of you that listen and enjoy the podcast. And just thank you so much for your faithfulness to listen and to tune in. Thank you to those of you that listen to the past two episodes regarding Satan and his demons. Who are they and what they do in the world currently? And so in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get to eschatology, as I said in a couple episodes ago, where we're going to look at the rapture, the tribulation period, the Antichrist, the second coming of Jesus, the millennial reign, the binding of Satan, and the the final end-all be-all for when they get cast into the lake of fire. So we're going to take a couple of episodes and really just explain all that and what, see what scripture has to say about that. And I believe it's, uh, it's a very interesting study, and so I'm looking forward to that. But before we get there, I preached a message at youth group last night, and I'm recording this on Thursday, and I preached last Wednesday, this past Wednesday night on this topic out of 1 Peter chapter 3. And so at youth group, we've been going through 1 Peter for a while now, and we've looked at various themes, the holiness of a believer, how we're to live like Christ. And then when we come to chapter three, he's just giving us some amazing doctrine and some great truth for Christians, even when we're facing just uncertainty. And so we're going to look at that today. And why we're going to look at that specifically is inside of these verses I'm going to read to you, um, it poses two very deep questions. And so as I studied this the past week, many commentators and many preachers that are smarter than I They said these verses are some of, if not the most, heavily debated passages in all of Scripture. And so there's wildly different, just wild theories about these passages. There are just, as I was studying, I probably read 10 to 20 different theories just on these verses. And so we're going to try to unpack them, and I'm going to give you my biblical conviction and my understanding of these verses. And so I understand you might disagree, and so I'm just going to give you what I feel is correct through my studying of the Scripture here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so I want to give a little bit of context before we jump into it. Peter is writing to scattered believers. He's writing to believers that are under heavy persecution. Nero is on the throne here, and he he hates Christians. He cannot stand Christians. He's an awful man. And he's literally, he's blamed all kinds of awful crimes on them, and he wants to see Christians put to death. And so Peter is writing to really heavy-hearted Christians who are under persecution and are suffering a great deal of pain during this time. And so Peter writes to them some amazing and encouraging truths. And so in verses 13 through 17, he's writing about the suffering of a believer and how we have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. Because even though we as Christians might be facing something that's unbearable, at times we still have a hope. All the time we have a hope and we can shine the light of Jesus even in an awful situation because Jesus is still good to us. And so then he's writing here in this chapter how us as believers can coexist and be a faithful witness for Christ in a world with unbelievers. So how can a Christian remain a positive light? And so we, in, in the chapter here, he basically, he promises that we as Christians will face suffering. And it's basically required in scripture that we as believers will go through some type of persecution or suffering. And if you look at any man or woman that's done great things for God, you will see them also going through a great deal of suffering in their life at some point. And that's what Peter says in verse 17. It's better if we suffer for doing good. He said, for it is better if the will of God 
It is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So he says it's better if you suffer while you're serving Christ than if you were to walk into sin and then face suffering as a result of sinful actions. And so it's actually good for us as a Christian to go through suffering, and that's because when we're suffering, we grow closer to Christ than we've ever been to Christ before. And so then he transitions to verse 18. And so the verses I really want to highlight on in this episode are verses 18. 18 through 22, and they pose two very deep questions. Verse 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by, fi- by water. The like figure, whereinto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. And so as I said, as I was studying, there was probably 10 to 20 different theories regarding this small passage of scripture. And so the nature of these verses is not a great deal of application, but it's very informative for us and to answer these deeper questions. And so we're going to look at a few different things, four things in specific from these verses. Two of them are great truths that you've heard a lot. And then two of them are just They pose some deeper questions, and so we'll get to that in a moment. We see, number one, he suffered so we could be righteous. He suffered so we could be righteous. Peter is continuing this theme of suffering for righteousness' sake in verse 18, and that we as Christians and as followers of that which is good, we will eventually suffer in some degree for Christ. And though that brings us closer than we could ever be to Christ, we still have to endure it. But in hopes to encourage the persecuted believers in Peter's day, He gives them through the inspired pen of the Holy Spirit the greatest example of someone suffering for righteousness sake that has ever lived. And Peter, a man full of the Holy Spirit, always pointing his readers back to the amazing truth of the gospel and that Jesus is our greatest example of someone suffering unjustly for God's greater plan. And so we know the story. We know what Christ did for us, but it's always worth mentioning every time scripture brings it up. And so if you study the whole book of first Peter. Peter brings it up in chapter one. He brings it up in chapter two. And here it is again in chapter three, just the suffering and the pain that Christ went through just to save us. And so it's always worth covering that topic again. Every time it comes up, the gospel is not just for the lost person, but the gospel is for the saved person. And it simply strengthens them in their daily walk with the Lord. So it's often misunderstood that you only need to preach the gospel to the lost. However, saved people need the gospel just as much. And so Peter is speaking in light of verse 17, but he says, The greatest example of suffering for that which is good is Jesus Christ. And that is the one that we should look to every time, and it's none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. And so he writes, Christ also once suffered. The Greek word for suffered could also be rendered as died or death. And so Peter says Christ suffered unjustly, or Christ actually suffered so much that he died in the flesh, and it was an unjust death. And so, well, some might say, well, what did he die for? What was the perfect son of God suffering for? And the verse says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. 
And so Peter says he's suffering for your sins and he's suffering for my sins. And we know that Christ was perfect. He never sinned. He never had one wrong thought. And Christ was not tainted with sin, but he still suffered for sin. And so literally he took all of your lies, all of your disobedience, and he placed it on himself to take your punishment so that you don't have to. And so 2 Corinthians paints us the perfect picture of this. It says that Christ knew no sin for God made him sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so all of the Old Testament, they gave blood sacrifices on the cross with animals each week, and that was only to cover their sins for a short time. But 2,000 years ago, the perfect lamb was born. Christ, fully God and fully man, had no blemish, had no sin, had no imperfection, and he came for one reason, to suffer and to die for the sins of mankind. Because we, in and of ourselves, we justly deserve the outpouring of God's wrath. We deserve that. But Christ wanted us to have his righteousness, so he offered a swap. And so what you and I needed was was a substitute. We needed someone that would take our place to suffer the death and the judgment that we deserve. And Jesus did that. He literally said, I will take your sins and in trading, I will give you my righteousness. He said, I'll suffer for you. I'll take your sin. I'll take all of your wrongdoing. And in trading, I'm going to give you my perfection. I'm going to give you my righteousness. What a love that Jesus Christ has for us as his believers, that he would suffer for us so that we could have his righteousness. And so he suffered so that we could have righteousness. And secondly, we see he descended to proclaim victory. He descended to proclaim victory. And so now here is where this passage of scripture is not one of, if not the most heavily debated verses in all of scripture. And I'm going to simply give you my thought and conviction on this passage, because one day you might be asked this question and you will need to know an answer for yourself. And so maybe you, maybe someone that you know, maybe you have, you've studied this passage and you have a completely different thought than the thought I'm going to give you today. And that's completely fine. The good news is, whatever you believe about this verse, that does not change the truth of the gospel and the way to get to heaven. However, it is in Scripture, it's in verse 19, and so there is application and there's an answer for it biblically, and so we must look at it and have an answer for it. And so to understand verses 19, or verse 19, let's look first at the last part of verse 18, where it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And so Peter writes that Christ, after he suffered, or literally suffered to death, he was dead in the flesh. And so we know that we all must face earthly death, and that is the punishment for sin. But as believers, we do not have to face eternal death because of Christ. Now, there would be some that would tell you and I that Christ, while he was on the cross, he did not physically die. He actually was put into a coma with some type of medicine that Luke gave him, and he was, his heart rate was slowed down to a very small amount, and he never really died. That's not true. The Bible clearly says Christ died, and so he was, the verse says, put to death in the flesh. That means his earthly being ceased to exist he did not live on earth at that moment. So part of the gospel is that Christ in his earthly life ceased to exist for three days. That's part of the gospel, the death 
part of the gospel is that he literally had to die. And when you read the account of it in the gospels, the guards came by to break the two the, the legs of the two thieves on either side of Jesus on Calvary. And they'd done that so that they could not glean up to get a breath while they were on the cross. And so they did not break the legs of Jesus because they knew they were professionals in torture. They were professional in crucifixions. And so when they saw someone, they knew if they were dead or not. And so they didn't break the legs of Jesus because number one, it was prophecy that not a bone of him would be broken, but also they didn't break them because they could see clearly that he was already dead. And so the verse says that Christ had to face fleshly death, which was part of the gospel and the payment for our sins. He had to pay for our death. So part of the gospel is that Christ literally died for three days. And so we know from scripture, Paul tells us that being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so even though our earthly bodies might be asleep, those who have went to sleep in Christ are in heaven. And so we know that very clearly in scripture, those that have died in the flesh or those that have went to sleep, not in Christ, they're in hell forever. But our loved ones that have went to sleep or died in Christ, they are with Jesus right now. And so Christ's earthly body died, but his spirit did not. See the end of verse 18, if you have your Bible, if not, I'll read it. It says, was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. The word quickened there means to be made alive. So his spirit was alive. And some would argue here that that's speaking of the Holy Spirit, not Jesus himself's spirit. But if it was the Holy Spirit, the Greek, the definite article there is removed. And so it's not speaking of the Holy Spirit, it's speaking of Christ's spirit himself. And so the question comes up, if Christ's body is dead, but his spirit is alive, where did Jesus go and what did Jesus do during those three days. And that is one of the deepest questions that arises from this passage is where did Jesus go and what did his spirit do during those three days? Did he just sit in the tomb? Did he ascend back to heaven? What did he do? And well, Peter gives us a vague answer that some very prominent Christians argue about. Some wish this would be omitted from Scripture. I, on the other hand, find it simply fascinating to study, and I believe answering this difficult question is rather simple to understand if you take what Scripture is saying here in this chapter and in a few other places. And so where did he go? Well, verse 19 says, "...by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison." So Peter says he went to preach to those that were in prison. Now, a few words here we need to understand, and the first word is preached. We often think of preached as preaching the gospel. We think it's a pastor standing behind a pulpit on Sunday morning proclaiming the gospel. We think of going out on the streets and into the stores and preaching the gospel and telling others about Jesus. But the Greek word here is not to preach the gospel. It's for herald or to proclaim. And so Try and uh, so someone to try and claim that he preached the gospel, but if that were the case, Peter would have used the Greek word for evangelize. And so people say that, but the Greek word does not support that claim. The Greek word is not to evangelize or to preach the gospel, it's simply to herald an announcement. So, like someone winning a basketball game, when they run the streets and claim that they have won, they've won, they've won, that is just heralding an announcement, proclaiming an announcement. You can proclaim any news. And so it simply means that he went somewhere to proclaim something or to tell something on a larger scale. So then the question arises, well, who did he proclaim this message to? 
Peter says in verse 19, he went and preached unto the spirits. And so who are these spirits or what are these spirits? The Greek word for spirits is not the same word that's ever used for mankind. And so the Greek word that's used here in the New Testament never refers to humans. It only refers to angelic beings or specifically fallen angels or demons. And so this fits right in with what we've studied on the podcast in the past couple of weeks. So he is proclaiming to fallen angels. But then where did he go to preach to or to proclaim to these fallen angels? Peter says prison. Peter writes in his second epistle that some fallen angels were so guilty of a sin that they do not have the freedom to be used of Satan today. And so we know that these demons, some de- some angels followed Satan in rebellion, making them fallen angels or demons. And so these are the demons that Christ goes and he preaches or proclaims to in prison. And so these select few demons, they were already cast into prison forever. They cannot be used as Satan's mouthpiece. They cannot be used as Satan's minions today. And so these demons are already placed in an eternal cage. The Greek word for prison simply is cage forever. And so which demons are these? And so to keep it brief, you can look at verse 20. It says, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. And so Peter, to keep it brief, Peter writes in verse 20 that the demons that were present in Noah's day or the leading up to the flood that caused the great wide scale moral decay of mankind that tempted mankind, those demons are the ones in question here. And so to keep it very brief, it's most likely speaking specifically about the fallen angels in Genesis 6 that possessed men and they had relations with earthly women. It's called the sons of God and the daughters of women. And so no need to go further there, but they were guilty of trying to redefine God's design for marriage. And so it sounds a lot like today in a, in a sense, but they were guilty of trying to overthrow the plan of God with no regard for morals whatsoever. And so these are demons that are already in prison. And so now the question arises, what did Christ go and say to them? Well, these demons in Genesis chapter 6, they heard the proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, spirits and demons, they cannot receive salvation. Christ did not die for demons. Christ did not die for angels. But these specific fallen angels still heard the proclamation to Satan that was for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where Jesus said, or God said, Jesus would one day crush the head of Satan. And so we know that demons and Satan, they're not all knowing like God. And so once they were bound in Genesis 6, they most likely thought they had won. And honestly, they almost they were close with God only being able to spare eight people out of the whole world. I mean, he gave Noah 120 years to preach to these people and to build the ark and to try to get as many people to come onto the ark as possible. And so that just goes to show the wide scale moral decay that was taking place in the world during that time. And so these demons in prison, as far as they are concerned, yes, they heard the proclamation, but they probably thought they had won and spreading sin and spreading moral decay throughout the world. And they thought maybe the gospel will never happen because in their mind and in the mind of Satan, that is their master plan is to keep the gospel from happening. So Christ descended as he already paid for the sins by his own perfection. Verse 18 says, then Christ descended and he went to preach to those that are in prison and simply he went to proclaim victory. 
He's not going to give them salvation. He's not going to give them mercy. He's going to proclaim victory. Because if you study verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3 in context, it's really speaking about the triumph of Christ, the victory of Christ, and the victory that he has over sin. So these demons in prison, Christ goes down, descends down to proclaim victory to them. Can you imagine the look on these demons' face. For 4,000 years, they thought that victory was theirs. Then all of a sudden, a light shines that is brighter than the sun and out steps Jesus, the Son of God, into their prison, into their cage, and he looks at them, and in that moment, they know they've lost forever. They can no longer have victory because Christ himself has claimed victory. And they're in prison. They're in that prison cell. Christ proclaims to them that he is one one and that they have lost and then he ascends back as he leads the captivity captive he ascends back to rise again on the third day and so why does Peter give us this little snippet of information I think it's very easy to instill hope to those that are persecuted to those that are suffering for righteousness sake he is instilling hope and the same is true for you. No matter what you're going through today, no matter what circumstance you might be facing today, Christ has won it all. Victory has been proclaimed to all ends of the world, and Christ is the victor. Christ has won, and Christ is above all. And so even though demons might tempt you, even though sin might, you might struggle with a certain sin, depression might run through your mind daily, doubt might struggle you, your marriage might not be great, the life at school might not be great, circumstances, sickness might be overwhelming you, at the end of the day, Christ is still victorious. He is still paid for sin. He has still offered himself as the sacrifice for mankind. And he has proclaimed over even the demons in prison that he has won and that Satan has lost. Then we see thirdly, he rose so that we could have life. He rose so that we could have life. Now Peter writes yet another difficult statement that many people argue about among denominations. And so that is, does baptism save a person? So if we see verse 21, it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of, of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so there's a whole podcast episode on this question, and so we will not spend that much time here because it's already been addressed on the podcast but Peter does bring up yet another difficult question and that is does baptism save a person and so not to leave anyone confused and misunderstanding scripture I want to go ahead and just give you the plain out answer no baptism does not save a person but let's unpack this verse and understand Peter's meaning because if we was to just read there uh, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us many people would be confused and many people argue among denominations that Peter is preaching that salvation comes by baptism and so that's not the truth but in verse 20 he's speaking about Noah and how they were safe inside the ark and the water is what lifted the ark above all evil, keeping Noah and his family alive. The ark for Noah and his family is a refuge, and the ark was meant to foreshadow Christ and his redemption. So Peter is saying that we as Christians also have an ark, and that is Jesus Christ. The Greek wording here in verse 21, not to go too deep, but it simply means a type. And so it's saying baptism is a type of 
the ark or baptism is a type of salvation. You say, what does that mean? It simply means it's a picture of. And so baptism is nothing more than a visual representation of us placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The word baptism simply means to immerse. And so most of us believe it means to immerse in water, to visually represent to the congregation or to family or to someone that we have publicly identified with Jesus Christ and we have placed our faith in him. But here it could mean we have been immersed into Jesus Christ. And so Peter is using this as a figurative immersion, symbolizing our immersion into Christ as the ark of our salvation. And just like Noah and his family sailed over all of the corruption and wickedness, when we are safe in Jesus Christ, our ark will sail over all wickedness of the demons and the fallen angels and any sin that tempts us. And so baptism that we practice today has nothing to do with receiving salvation, but everything to do with identifying that you are now in Christ Jesus. See, because if you look on in the verse, if we was to stop there in verse 21 and say, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, many people get confused. But if you keep reading in the verse, not in the parentheses, not putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying baptism that we practice has nothing to do with receiving salvation. If we look on in the verse, it throws a wrench into anyone that would say water baptism offers salvation. And so people could be misguided if they don't look on and look at the context of the verse. But the verse says not the putting away of the filth. And so water baptism does not wash away your sins. Water baptism does not cleanse you and offer you righteousness. It doesn't do that whatsoever. And so do not be misguided by the wording Peter is using here to describe baptism. He's simply saying baptism is a picture or a type of Jesus Christ, saying that it's visually identifying with Jesus. When we're safe in the ark, we got baptized into the family of the Spirit when we got saved, and it only comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And so look, the last part of the verse says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that is where salvation comes from. Salvation does not come through water baptism. It's not Jesus and water baptism. It's not Jesus and church membership. It's Jesus. It's his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that alone gives you salvation. Jesus and his mercy and his resurrection, that gives you salvation. So don't be misguided by the wording that Peter uses here. Baptism is a picture of what we have in Christ. So does baptism save you? No. Only Christ himself and his blood saves you and washes away sin. Last thing we see is he ascended to receive all power. Won't be here long, but in verse 22 he said, Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So he suffered, he descended, he rose, and he ascended. And so this really quickly. He then ascends after his resurrection, after he appears to the disciples and the multitudes and proves that he has risen again. He ascends to the right hand of God the Father, and he has been given all authority, all power. So that means every demon, that means Satan, all humans, every wind, every sea, outer space, the government, everything is under his feet, and he is in complete control. The one that gives you life, the one that died for you, the one that sacrificed everything for you, the one that loves you with a love that cannot be explained. He alone is in control of everything. And so again, Peter writes these last few words of this chapter to instill hope in his weary believers and his weary readers. And so though your situation might be extremely difficult, 
Though it might seem impossible, the one that saved you is in control of everything. And so if your situation at home or at work or at school or with family or with your husband or wife isn't great, just remember your Redeemer has all power and all authority. And so maybe today you need to claim Christ's victory over that situation because he has power and he has authority and he'll use that power and authority in your life if you let him. And so you must just claim the victory of Christ. So let's not get so overwhelmed with the deeper questions of this passage to not see the great picture. But the larger picture is that Christ is victorious. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again to offer you and I salvation. And so let's you and I, like he did in verse 19, let's proclaim the victory of Jesus to everyone that we come in contact with. And today, if you struggle with sin, if you struggle with some besetting sin or some action or some thought or, some, or depression, claim victory over that in the name of Jesus. He wants to help you, and he's been given all power and all authority. I hope this wasn't Thanks too deep, but I if hope it was informative, and I hope I was able to convey it in a way that's understandable. And, and that's my friends. prayer today. We but as always, have a great Friday, and God, God bless. bless.